What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Yes, Pat. I can't help but notice you have a new puppy out there. I do have a new puppy. Have you thought about getting some expert advice on how to raise that puppy? Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it just happens that we do have an expert as part of our sponsor group. Really? Yeah, Dan Croft Canine. Do they run puppy class? They run amazing puppy classes. What what on earth do they do there? They've got whole ranges of foundation for puppy school. So they're running a complete socialization package and they're doing a whole range of different levels for puppies. And that's what they really wanted to emphasize is that they are experts in puppy raising and training. Where are they experts in puppy raising and training? In Toronto, Canada. Whoa. So if you were in Toronto, Canada, and you had a friend, a client, a relative, just anybody who was getting a puppy Mm -hmm. and you wanted to set that puppy up for success, you could probably send them to Dancroft, can I? If I was over in Toronto, Canada with my new little Rottweiler puppy, Mando, I would go over, and I'm, I swear this, I would go over and I would do the socialization program with them. Great I idea. love what they're doing. Have you seen this set up online? Oh, amazing. Fantastic. Amazing. They had a tire with a medicine ball with a pit bull doing a drop stay on top of it. My goodness. Amongst a dozen other dogs that were doing all similar things, like on BOSU balls and all sorts of things. My goodness. It was great. Fantastic. Unbelievable. Yeah. Hey, speaking of your puppy, mm-hmm. what's going on with his nutrition? Couldn't go past canine tuticles. Supplemented up. Supplemented up to the help. My goodness. Yeah. So he should have arms like Arnold Schwarzenegger by the time we're finished. Where did you get those canineceuticals from? From Narelle Cook. Narelle Cook. How, yeah. do, you, how do you know her? <laughs> <laughs> Funny that she's got the same last name as me. Yeah. The supplier is very local. Absolutely. Canineceuticals, but ha- legit, it's probably the best supplements available. Best for supplements available, human grade, gone through the absolute rigorous testing program. I mean, Narelle's got stat sheets on it and everything like that on demand. So if people want to know what they're actually putting into their dog's body supplement wise, they can reach out to her and she's got all the facts and figures before she even put it down as a physical product. She spent years and years researching it before it was actually come to market. So great stuff. Yes, the puppy's definitely on it. All our dogs are on it. And there's a shit ton of people around Australia and New Zealand who are taking caninesuticals and the feedback is astronomical. Amazing. Yep. Do you plan on taking Mando on your motorbike? If I did, you know who I'd have to go to, don't you? You'd have to get one of those Rowdy Hound boxes. Rowdy Hound dog kennels. Yeah. From Horny George. George Kittridge himself. You'd have to get one of those Rowdy Hound dog kennels to go on the back of your motorbike. How good is his social media? It's the best. Yeah. I love watching the dogs cruise around motorbikes. I think it's one of the coolest things ever. They've got their little doggles on. Yeah. You know, like we talk about living the best life. Well, for people who are motorcyclists, they can do both. I'm serious about thinking about getting one, but then I've got to train a – I don't know if having a Rottweiler on the back of a bike is going to be a great <laughs> idea. Your sport but, bike. <laughs> but, well, uh, I think you should do it. Maybe one day when I've got a smaller mid-sized dog, uh, I would get a Rowdy Hound dog kennel and mm. I could travel around. So I could not only enjoy the company of my dog, which hundreds of people seem to be doing across the United States of America, and I could motorcycle at the same time. So Amazing. two things that are very dear to my heart coming together. All right. This ad's going on for a long time. Mm. I need to get out of here and go and train some dogs. Yep. But do you know where I got the equipment that I'm going to use to train those dogs? The goat. 
The goat. The billy goat's gruff. Ein's a wiener. <laughs> <laughs> the wiener himself. <laughs> Einswick dog quip. Yeah. If you're not buying all your dog training gear from them, yep. I don't know where you're fucking getting it from. Well, if not from Thurman, Einswick dog quip, the Ein's a wiener. How the hell does he sell anything being such a grumpy old bastard? He's online now. He's got a website. That's you right. Can, they don't have to deal with him. You correct. can actually buy things <laughs> off the website. You can actually do it now. Yep. Einswickdogquip.com.au yep. or just .com. Probably one of them. I don't it's know. one of them. It just, we'll put it in the out. Yeah, put it, you, yeah. You'll click. You'll find a link. You'll buy some stuff. <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Hello, everyone. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? I'm wonderful on this late Thursday evening. It is a late Thursday evening. We're recording after PSA yeah, instead after of training. before PSA. Yeah, that's right. Hmm. Remy did well tonight. I was really, I know we've talked about this ourselves, but yeah. I'm going to tell the world yeah. who listens to our podcast that Remy bit me on the leg very nicely. Yep. We're trying to figure out that barrage thing. Yeah. Um, see how we go. Well, he did nice. He just charged in, just yeah. chomped me straight on the leg. It was yep. nice. Yeah. Ran past the stick. Yeah. Ran past the arm. I was trying to bait him onto the arm and he ran under and slammed me right on the leg. Yeah. So we'll Beautiful. see if we can get that sorted again. We'll have another crack at the Mondeo. Mm. It'll still be totally 50-50 whether we – the defensive handler will just depend how it goes. Like I've kind of resigned. I'd like to have another crack at the trial and I probably will for two reasons. It's fun. And second, you know, like I support the idea of dog sports, so I'll go to as many as be involved in wherever possible. I just won't do the jump because, mm. like, his body's just – like, it's just not worth the risk to train it, to get it right. Like, so I'll just not take those 15 points. And like I say, for me, it's more of a, a fun thing than, you know, hardcore trying to pass, but I want to do well where I can. So trying to teach him to go through a Mondio-style barrage, which he's just never really encountered. Like, he knows how to deal with a fend – in a PSA terms, yep. but the Mondio style barrage where they've got their sort of left arm hanging back, it really confuses him because mm. he, like he's used to sort of that PSA picture and what he did in the trial and what he tends to do is just kind of hope that it's there and kind of <laughs> flies forward and gets a skeeved. It comes back in and gets a fine, but that's a point reduction. So since I kind of need every point, it's totally possible I'm going to blow an entire section, a mm. 30 point section, I want to try and get all the other points that I can. And I know for sure I'm going to blow 15 points because I'm not going to do the jump at all. Yep. So like that's 15 points gone. So like if, if I don't do well in the defensive handler, I can't pass. And so we'll just see how we go. Very considerate of you not to do the jump with him considering his legs and- It's just not worth it. It's not and, worth and it. And if they're the points that are the difference between the pass and the fail, like I'm, I'd rather fail than risk injuring. Yeah, I agree. I was having a good think about this the other day because, you know, when you talk about the confusion of a dog entering a new sport, especially something that he really doesn't understand the picture of. I remember being involved in Schutzen. It was more Schutzen when I was doing it, but we were just drilling BHs all the time because most people that were coming into the club were new. Not many people. It's like going to a martial arts school. Mm. Not many people get to black belt. There's heaps of whites and then it starts to span out. Eventually it just filters down and there's probably one or two black belts, a couple of browns, blues, reds, whatever colour system they use in their gradings. Yeah. It's exactly the same in sports club as well. There's not many dogs that get to the top rank because it's hard work. It's, yeah. It's dedicated work. And I remember drilling a lot of things like the BH. And I remember the first time 
I did the PDC and I thought, holy shit, this is just weird. It feels weird. You know, Mm. like you're fighting against what you know and what your muscles remember. Even though it was a long time since I did it, you know, like I remembered all the BH routine because we just walk that field time and time again. Yeah. You'd walk it as a competitor. You'd walk it as a trainer. Yeah. You'd walk other competitors up there while you're training them how to do it. So you're just walking the beat the whole time. Yeah. And then when I was doing PDC, I'm thinking, oh, shit, I'm supposed to turn left or I'm supposed to turn right or I'm supposed to do this, I'm supposed to do that, which is different. Mm. Like if we have that much of an issue with it trying to differentiate between a system, imagine how a dog is. Yeah. You know, especially when they really don't understand or comprehend what the entire structure of it is yet. Yeah, and I think in those obedience routines, it's easy enough because you're just telling the dog what to do and the dog does Mm. what he's told. But in the bite work, like the pre- the different presentations of the decoys really, like because you're then asking the dog like, hey, man, just go bite and the pitch is going to be totally different. You have to figure that out as you go. Yeah, go against your system that you've been learning yeah. pretty much all your life up until this point. Yeah, and and like it's not like he isn't going to bite, but one of the issues I do have with Remy is that there's so much control work mm. and he's quite a biddable dog and like there's no – aggression in the way that he works, right? I mean, there is, but not like, you know, like he's not like, there's no viscosity. Like he's not, you know, like a really like out to hurt the decoy. It's no defense. It's mainly prey. So he's very quite malleable. And Mm. if he thinks like, oh, you're trying to teach me something, he gets into that sort of learning mode. (laughs) And when the decoy starts doing something weird, he's like, you guys are trying to run me through something here. Mm. Like, and and sort of (laughs) goes into sort of very slow, like, really pays attention to what he's doing so that he get, he understands the feedback and that kind of stuff. And yep. I'm like, I'm like, just blast through, man. Like, just go through the decoy. Like, just bite. And he's like, nah, this is too weird. You're definitely like, I've never seen this before. I'm nearly six years old and you've never done anything like this before. Like, I don't understand what's going on here. You've always asked me to pay attention and focus. Yeah. What's going on today? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, that's it, right? Yep. What do you mean I'm meant to look at the, the mm. decoy and bite without permission? We've spent hours making sure that I never bite without permission. Mm. Uh, but it's fun and, you know, it's something to do. So- We'll see how we go. It's in a few weeks. We'll see. I'll decide as we come up to it. If I think I'm ready, I'll have another go. But like, I want there to be a chance of passing. I'm not turning up to have my dog escaped and and miss, you know, like, so it's, there's no point going in it if it's going to be a shit show. But if I think that it's like, it's not going to cause a problem for me, it's not going to degrade anything, Mm. then I'll have another go. Isn't it nice of the boys from the Mondio Club? Yeah, for sure. Or the people from the Mondio Club, because I'm sure there's girls over there as well. Yep. People from the Mondio Club, that they're being very inclusive. Yep. Everything that we were sort of complaining about in the early days, it's nice to see that that has narrowed down a little bit with a certain group of people. But I think the power and influence of a certain group of people has faded and the rest of now, the rest of us are like, hey, none of us ever wanted there to be conflict or divide between the bite sports. It's exactly what we've been talking about for years mm. is that the rest of us are now saying like, no, we want to work together. We want to play together. We just want to play different games and we can absolutely help each other play those games. The people who are like, no, I'm in charge of everything are, are people of leaving them behind. You can be in charge of nothing. It just leads to disappointment and degradation at some point because there's always some nefarious set of eyes on groups of people thinking, oh, they look like they're having fun and they're doing things that I consider isn't cool and I want to stop them doing Mm. it. We've been down this track so many times with different things, with tools, with training systems, with, oh, that's one thing that really scares the bejesus out of me. When Kirsty and Brittany were talking to some of the representatives over this whole prong collar thing, the comments started coming up. Should we have dogs like this? We need 
yeah. training tools. Yeah. Now, you and I have been saying that for a long time. That's the point. That's the point. Like you've got other people in the UK starting to call Mel's out for being the next big problem dog. You've got politicians who are starting to ask questions like that. It's no time for division. It's no time for segregation or separation or, you know, this elitism or egotistic concepts to get in the way of building structure and building a fraternity of people that can say, hang on a minute, you're misinformed or you're misjudging this or you're judging this emotionally. It may not make any real difference at the end of the day, but it's better than having these tiny groups of 15, 20 people six of them that were all belly aching but refused to cooperate with the other brothers in arms because they're under a different banner doing a slightly different way of presenting a bite to a dog. Mm -hmm. Crazy stuff. Madness. Madness. Mm. Hey, so last week Mm. we discussed that the topic of the most dangerous advice you've ever heard in training and I – Jumped in and went on a big ranty rant about people fucking with dogs' food while they're while they're eating. But that was good, and I didn't want to interrupt that because I liked where you were going with and some of the concepts you were discussing. And I kind of thought that's actually a good subject for a podcast on its own, mm. rather than just like quickly skirting through it. I think it really needed to be unpacked. So it's your turn, sir. I think the most dangerous advice that I was given. There's been modules of conversation around this in different episodes that we've done. And I say that a lot in different episodes about things that we've talked about. Well, we're 250 episodes. Yeah. I mean, we talk talk so much about repeating yourself. Well, you repeat yourself and especially as you get older, you repeat yourself because you like telling your stories over and over again to people. But the most dangerous advice that I've been given, I consider, was give up being a balanced trainer. Mm -hmm. For me, when I look back and consider what I think was a travesty was all the dogs that I was sending to the gallows because I couldn't use my tools and the way that I'd been training before. How did that come to be? Give us the background on that. I don't know if I have talked about it, but look, here we go. We're going to talk about it again. Mm. When I was with ADT, I was with them for quite a long time. And that was really my, where I cut my teeth on a lot of things. It was predominantly protection training and only really with working dogs. So I was only dealing with your shepherds, your roddies, and a lot of roddies and really good working style roddies. I know you kind of look at me like, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. but really good working roddies around at that time. Dobermans, staffies and pit bulls and all those sort of dogs. It was a fun environment. I really enjoyed myself. But the company structure sort of changed a little bit. It was going down a different path. Some people didn't like it. People started leaving. You know, things happen when mm-hmm. you change structures and a financial model gets introduced and people are thinking, oh, it's not a club anymore, it's a business. Mm-hmm. And that kind of happened with ADT. But it had to. It had to evolve into a business because it was getting big and it was getting serious. Like more centres were opening It was attracting a lot more people and there were other things happening. And around that time, the dangerous dog legislation sort of came in. So there was a lot more focus on "Mm, this is not what is in the best interest of the community to have, you know, like a group of 100 or so people turning up on a Thursday night and doing bite work Mm -hmm. in a commercial property. So there were questions raised and all sorts of things going on. At one stage or another, there was a couple of people within the club that I was at odds with and I just thought to myself, maybe it's time to have a break from this. I was tired. You get burned out in this industry a lot. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of people talking about burnout right now. Mm -hmm. That's a considerable conversation that's coming up again. There's a funny movement. This is a side, I'm going to leap to a side subject, but there's a funny movement on at the moment where people just don't want to work. Yeah. They just don't want to. They're constantly making 
excuses for not coming to work. They're ringing up sick. People aren't turning up to interviews who say they're coming to an interview. Mm-hmm. Like you'll be waiting there and you've got five people booked in and probably one people out of those five will turn up. Mm-hmm. And I really think that all that is is to show Centrelink that they've accepted an interview sure, so they can sure. just go straight yeah. back. Oh, that's a That's a thought. It might be. But there is a weird entitlement going on at the moment. So I'm talking about people who aren't putting in, but the people who are putting in, they're copying it. They're the ones who feel responsible. They're the ones who are turning up for the shifts. They're the ones doing the work. I'm one of them and there's a myriad of other people who are doing the same sort of thing. They're just turning up time and time again. And there's people that you and I know in the industry who I've had conversations with about this entire topic and you can really hear it resonating within them. Like they're breaking. They're breaking inside and out, heart, soul and spirit. They're just like totally shattered. Too much of the same thing over and over again. And I get it. I know what it's like. Today, for example, is day 10 for me of working straight days Mm -hmm. because things have happened. We're coming into school holidays. Again, there's people who aren't turning up for shifts. There are people who are getting fed up with it. So because I'm senior management, I have to step in and I have to take the phone calls and I have to give up my own happiness and joy because you've got to do these sort of things. And Mm -hmm. it's just the burden of being in charge. Some people realise they don't want it and it's too difficult for them and and other people rise to the occasion. But that's not always good. Those sort of things have happened in the past with certain things and that was happening at ADT at the time. There was a bit of burnout going on. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't bear to turn up and be with those sort of people for a period of time. So I kind of thought, I'm just in the wind. I'm just going to leave it behind and get out of it for a period of time because I really invested – probably seven hard years of working in that industry, building a reputation, training Harley, and it was fucking hard work. Mm. I loved it. Don't get me wrong. I don't wish that I could turn back time and cancel anything of that because that hard work creates you and it forges you. And You know, there's a part of you that, that dies, but there's a part of you that regrows at the same time. It's a weird sensation. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, you totally. would, You would because yeah, totally. you had to rewrite yourself to become a soldier and become, you know, yeah. like a special forces guy. The old Pat Stewart had to sort of die a little bit and Mm -hmm. you had to grow a new man inside yourself. I know that sounds weird. People might be listening to me and thinking, this is a weird conversation. Mm. But it it does happen. You have to change who you are. You have to grow into someone else. Yeah, Yeah. totally. Yeah. That sort of faded in me for a bit of time and I I was lost and I was undecided about what I needed to do. I see and hear that in the forums a fair bit of time. You know, um, there's times where that conversation comes up a fair bit. So at that point in time, I was just sort of drifting, doing my own thing. I was sort of training small pockets of people down at the local park, which actually back then was quite good because I was making quite a lot of cash. Mm. It was it was good, you know, like I'd have 10 guys come down. I was just sort of hanging out at the park. Then they were sort of negotiating with me to drop my price. So I just told them, I want to fuck off. And yeah. I just said, listen, go fuck yourself, guys. I have to work during the week and then come down here and set all this up and and do it and take all the hits and be bruised and be at the chiropractors constantly. And I said, if you if you think I'm not worth it, then they're like, oh, no, 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 stay. And I just said, no, I'm fucked. I'm over it. I'm done, mm-hmm. you know. I was sort of just enjoying training my own dogs for a period of time and I was down at the park training Harley. And somebody who used to go to ADT years ago came down and they saw me there. It was a lady and she came over and she said, oh, hi, Glenn, how are you going? I said, good, how are you? What are you doing? And she said, oh, I kind of got away from that sort of the macho, bitey sort of training sort of thing. I've got a different dog now. My old shepherd died and I've got like a little dog. And she goes, but I'm training with this really, I won't say the name of the business, but she said, I'm training with this group of people. 
It's a different way of training, a lot of positive work. You should come down and check them out. She said, it's different. You have to use your mind a little bit more and it's not so physical. And uh, I said, oh, doesn't sound like something I really want to invest in. She said, oh, don't be like that. You know, like don't be closed off to opportunity. You should come down and have a look, at least have a look. And I said, you know what, why not? So I went down there one day and, you know, I sort of sat there and I was looking at these people and I'm smirking to myself and thinking, I don't see myself fitting in with this group of people but kind of went for coffee and cake with them after training had finished and we're all chatting and talking about dogs. And they were kind of baiting me a little bit. It was kind of like, so we know you're into the yank and crank and the force training and so forth. We kind of do it different here where it's a bit more of a mindset. So they started baiting the hook and I was young and very egotistical. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, I wanted to prove them wrong and try and get them to come over to my way of thinking as it was, I was literally falling hook, line, sinker into their rhetoric. Mm. I was literally getting bought into the whole Kool-Aid. Like I kept going back there and I kept going home and this was my other wife, Vicky, and she said to me, oh, what did you think of it? And I said, oh, I don't know, don't like it, it's weird, it's different. And she said, yeah, but weird and different isn't such a bad thing sometimes. Like you're always saying you want to learn new things, you want to push frontiers, why don't you consider having a look at it? And she said, it might be stupid and you might not like it, but you should consider it. Mm -hmm. I thought, okay, well, that's food for thought. How could I argue with that? And I kept finding myself going down there. I was intrigued. And like I was thinking I was teaching them something, but they were luring me in and I was going, you know, like (laughs) it was It was kind of like before I knew it, I was talking their language and I was saying the same things that they were saying, but I didn't realise I was doing it. All of a sudden I sort of – started to change what I was doing. I wasn't using tools anymore. I was going to say to them, well, I'll show you, Mm -hmm. you know, like I'll outdo you with what you've taught me. Mm -hmm. I was always ambitious and scrambling for the top position all the time. So I thought, okay, well, if I'm doing it this way, I'm going to be the best. best I'm going to be the best at this group. Again, that's just my young ego running wild. It's not like it is anymore. I can easily walk away with things now and think, oh, I don't care doesn't matter, just really a life game. I don't need to do it. But then it was serious. Yeah. Then it was like, no, nah, I have to do it. So I kept turning up, kept going down, kept doing the training, kept getting drawn into another level of hell. And um, <laughs> I'd say that tongue in cheek, of course. They were really nice people though. Mm-hmm. Let me state this way. They were really nice people and I did learn things. I learned to be a gentle and more considerate trainer mm-hmm. because I was working with different types of dogs, dogs that I'd never worked with before, breeds that I'd never touched, Bichon Freeze, Cavaliers, never handled any of these types of dogs before, Mini Schnauzers, Poodles, all these sort of dogs were coming down to these training. And I was really kind of not happy about that at the start because I was working with working dogs. Yeah, yeah. And I kept thinking to myself, this is not a real man's dog. Mm-hmm. This is like a sissy dog to mm-hmm. work with. But at the same time, I was kind of having fun with these dogs and I was learning to do fun things. My shaping improved. I started learning better timing. I started understanding how to do the whole acquisition process, learning how to incrementally build behaviors based on what they were doing. And all that was the good side. This is all the positive side of everything. The negative side of it was sometime down the track. And I'd probably say about nine months into the Kool-Aid, I started getting dogs that were coming down or people that were coming down for lessons and I could see the hurt and the pain and the desperation in these people. Before you go on to that, let me just understand something. Mm. This is 25 years ago? This is probably about 22 years ago. Okay. Yeah. And within the training community at the time and that you were aware of, 
there probably wasn't anything that you would call like balanced training, right? So there was like compulsion based training. And then these people that were sort of force free or, or positive only type training. But what you and I would identify we just with called now, it dog training. Yeah. But I mean, like looking retrospectively, mm. what you and I would identify as now is like a proper balanced trainer that knows how to do the whole lot and is willing to do whatever is like, I can go positive today or, you know, I can use the tools on this dog or I can do a blended method on these dogs. Like, you know, I, I know it all and I can do, not I know it all. I know the spectrum and I can apply, which is appropriate at the time. There, I'm sure those people existed at the time, but there probably wasn't a lot of them. There wasn't much of a community around that. Right. So like when you're at ADT, like it was good dog training, I'm sure, mm. but it was mostly compulsion based. It was mainly compulsion based and we never used food as rewards. Yeah. The reward was a, a rolled up piece of jute in your back pocket. Yeah. Like even for argument's sake, even back then companies that are, are prolific now in businesses like Gap A and Euro Joe and all these sort of businesses that have quite a vast array of different tugs and toys and all that, that wasn't around. Yeah. I think Ray Allen was one of the big groups back then and it was hard to get. It wasn't as easy to get like it is these days. Like it's you go down to Maurice's place, Procane Iron Supplies or whatever, I mean there's shelves and shelves of stuff that you can just buy off the rack down there. Yeah. To get this sort of stuff, like you had to get a catalogue from Ray Allen. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's the, funny because you think like, oh, you just buy it online. But yeah, we didn't it, I mean, the, the internet didn't. existed, but the online shopping hadn't become what it is now. No way. No, it wasn't anything like it. Yeah. Nothing like it. Like dial-up back then was like a modem that used to speak to your telephone and, yeah. you know, like then squeal for 15 minutes and then finally come online. And, yeah. And basically all you could do was – type shit to each other. Yeah. So you could talk to people around the world, but not many people really knew yeah. about the internet. So like or, buying equipment, dog training equipment, someone kind of had to know someone. You had to get a catalogue sent to you, like yeah. actually sent to you. So there'll be people listening on the, this episode now going, what the fuck is yeah. this? <laughs> this is the retro dog training show. What yeah. the hell's going on? Yeah. And, and it's like, it's not that long ago. It's right? not that like, long ago. Like Not for me. Yeah. like we're, It's like yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Like very late 90s, early 2000s. Yep. That was totally, that was the case. Okay. So I just want to set the scene on that because I think exactly in the same way that people are thinking you could just go online shopping mm. 25 years ago, which you couldn't. At the time, there was more like the teaching of behaviors was done via compulsion mm -hmm. via most people. And these people that you are now hanging out with were sort of, you know, not using compulsion, bringing on behaviors appetitively. Yep. And which was at the time in that location, very new. I'm sure there were other people around the world. I'm sure there's people listening going, oh, I've been doing that since the 70s. Good for you. But like at the time in that- In, in Australia. Yeah. In, mm. With that group of people, this was very new. Yeah, this was, was avant-garde. I love that term, avant-garde. Avant-garde. You use words like minutia and avant-garde, all these spicy words that just pop out of your mouth. Mm. Mm. Cutting edge. Mm. You know what Kevin Smith says, don't you? <laughs> don't say it. <laughs> don't say it. <laughs> Carry on, sir. Okay. So, yes, it was very avant-garde. It was unusual, and I think that's what intrigued me so much. I mocked it when I first went there. I was kind of repulsed because it was so different than what I was doing, mm -hmm. and I looked down on it and I looked down on the people. If I'm going to be honest, I'm sharing honesty here because I didn't think they were up to a standard that we were, mm -hmm. but they were different. They were doing things differently, and like a lot of the dogs at ADT, especially because it was working with powerful working breeds and they were, they were doing – 
the thing they were designed to do, which was bite sleeves and bite suits. The dogs loved it. They had mm. a great time. That's exactly what they wanted to do. The obedience didn't look flashy at ADT though. And I mean, we rectified things like that over years when we started seeing we're creating almost a form of learned helplessness with the way that we were doing healing for argument's sake, like saying heal and then giving the dog a hard correction to push it into to gear. It wasn't the way to do it. We just mm. didn't understand at the time. And we had to change things around, which was good. We had a good think tank of people. But when I watched this group of people doing it, they were using food and their dogs were really enthusiastic. And I was kind of saying, yeah, but that's because you're bribing dogs in position. The head trainer came up to me and he said, mate, it's not bribing when you're in teaching phase when, or the, when you're in learning phase. He said, I would agree with you if you're in training phase and you still had the treat out that you're bribing the dog. And he said, but we're not doing that. This is a young class. And I thought, fuck, he's got me. This is exactly the same sort of material that we're teaching on NDTF, mm-hmm. you know. This is probably the foundation of where it came from, right? The foundations of NDTF was amalgamated from a lot of teachings from people all over the world, influence from people like Michael Ellis. Tom Rose. Tom Rose, yeah. yeah. Tom Rose was a big influence in the development of NDTF. And as I said, it's an amalgamation of what Boyd was doing when he was travelling around the US. You know, like he'd make time to go and meet these people and look at their training or we'd bring VHS tapes in because you had to do that too. Mm. You couldn't do things online like YouTube. You had to actually have... VHS tapes that we'd all sit around in his place. And then, you know, like there'd be 15 people all with notebooks taking notes and then arguing like cat and dog at the end of the night about what we'd been watching and finally coming up with a system where we thought this makes sense, you know, mm-hmm. like it's pretty good. Learberg, you know, there's a lot of Learberg. I think uh, advanced training systems or something like that. Okay. We were limited, very, very limited on what we had, which was produced through VHS seminars and books, mm-hmm. and that's where it was coming from. But as I said, you know, Boyd went and toured around the, the USA. He was doing a kickboxing slash dog training tour, and, uh, yeah, he came back and he said, guys, there's things that we need to change. Mm-hmm. So getting back to my old friends at the Plus R community, as I said before, interesting when I started watching how enthusiastic the dogs were, but I, I noticed the heavy absence of punishment, mm-hmm. and I did notice – that although there was a level of control there, I kind of thought to myself, the control looked to me like it was a ruse. Okay. And the reason I say like it that- it was a mirage. It was a mirage because it was a perfect scenario of not allowing the dogs to be overstimulated or distracted mm-hmm. in order for them to perform well. Okay. And that's what I started to notice time and time again. And when I asked questions around that, I was getting redirected away from that question. So instead of answering the question, I got questions back to me. Mm -hmm. And that's what I started to notice, that things weren't quite right and not everything was as rosy as what it was. Now, I've been to other clubs over the years since, and I think people have given me good answers to questions like that. And they've said, yeah, you're right. We're not in a proofing phase at this point in time. And I say, all right, well, what would you do in a proofing phase? They give me a sufficient answer by saying incrementally build the dog up to it. If the dog's not ready, we bring the dog back. We take the dog in a different environment where we can produce those skills and then we start to incrementally bring the dog back into those heavier environments again. And I thought, well, you can't argue with that. There's truth to that, but it still presents with problems because it's a bit of a backwards and forwards where I think in the balanced environment, that's where you'd start layering in positive punishments mm-hmm. uh, or even negative reinforcement. 
So you'd be able to control the dog that way. And there's probably people turning purple listening to this right now and saying, well, that's not true. You're just talking about something which you gave up on. And I did give up on it. After two years of it, I did give up on it. The reason I gave up on it, as I said before, which we were leading into, is I started seeing people coming down to the club, which they had problem dogs, dogs that weren't suitable for the DNA of that club, and they were being driven out of the club. Mm. The people were basically being told, you're giving up on the dog, you're not giving it enough time, you just want a quick fix with this dog. I just thought to myself, I'm hearing the same rhetoric just being repeated over and over again. And once again, when I started asking questions, I started realizing that they're looking at me like I'm an annoyance. Mm -hmm. I'm somebody who's like a pebble in their shoe. And I could start looking at their contempt for me because they would start thinking, here he comes again with his 101 questions, which we've tried to answer the last time. But I never felt that they were sufficiently answered. There was nothing that was concluded any time that we were actually talking about this. So, I mean, I've been mocked in the industry before. I know that there was a group that mocked me at a seminar um, and said, you know, like he just gave up and walked away from the industry. I didn't just give up. I spent two years there, Mm -hmm. you know, like I put in effort and I gave my all to them. I promised I would and I tried to. But when you know and you can see that there is just something going on and you're never getting answered, you're just being told to look left when you're asking about what's going on on the right. Mm. It's like a sleight of hand that a magician does. They're always trying not to let you look at the hand, which is revealing the card or the ball or whatever it is. They're trying to get you to look desperately at the other hand. And I thought to myself, this is what's going on at this club. They just won't answer my questions. They just don't give a fuck about what I'm I'm saying about They're just seeing me as a problem. And then I could start to see that the friends that I started to generate were now starting to avoid me. They didn't really want to associate with me anymore and I started to become an outcast. But I also realised that I was basically telling people that I couldn't help them anymore, Mm. you know, because I had to toe the company line basically and I was saying it through gritted teeth because I kept thinking to myself, if only I had my tools If only we could start talking about methods of compulsion, negative reinforcement, and even in cases, positive punishment. If only we could do this for this dog, I could save them from this pain. But I could hear myself saying, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Mm. That really started to fuck with my head. And it caused me sleep deprivation. Like I literally sit in bed and those words would echo around my head and I could hear those words and I started to despise myself for it. Because I thought, you can help these dogs and you know better than that. And once again, I know that there's people going to be out there vehemently disagreeing with me and saying you quit on something that you could have pursued and followed. To some of those people, I would say, I'd like to have a discussion with you about it. And to others, I'd like to say, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> because some of you, I you don't know what you're talking about. And some of you do. I've had some decent conversations with people who wanted to talk to me a little bit more about this in the past. But this for me was very troubling. I think the best thing that came of it, as I said before, is I learned to be a more patient trainer. Yeah. I learned to be more gentle. I learned to be um, far more considerate. I learned about other breeds that I would have pushed to the side before because we were – we were just not interested in dealing with that type of dog. We were interested in dealing with the working breed dogs. Mm. We were literally told people, this is not your club, it's full of working dogs. So we would turn people away. It was kind of weird that people with 
smaller dogs wanted to try and come down to ADT. Like they'd come down, do the first timers program, and then they produce this little, like a little cavalier. Mm. And Boyd would just say, guys, I've just been telling you for the last 10 minutes, it's a working dog club. And he'd give them addresses of other training centres that would take them and help them out and so forth. So it wasn't like we just said, fuck off. It was just, it wasn't the sort of club. When I first started this other club, obviously I did feel a bias. And I admitted before, I I kind of had that thing, oh, these are a lesser than type of training scenarios. I don't really think this is right for me. That wasn't entirely true. That was just my barriers I was putting in place. But I did learn things. And I'm Mm. grateful for the time that I had there. And I think about those sort of things quite regularly because even when I have fuckery going on in situations or I encounter problems or whatever it may be, I still think to myself and try and ask myself, well, what is the lesson that I'm supposed to learn here? And I did learn lessons there. I learned to be a better trainer because of these people. Mm. I'm talking about some of the negatives, but there were some positives too. There were some times where I felt like I had some really – cerebral conversations with some of these people that I shared in some fellowship with this group of men and women. I do want to get into that. I Mm. want to talk about the result coming out of that. You then end up like a blended trainer, surely, but we'll we'll talk to that. What I'm curious to ask about is when you think, like I'm sitting here looking at you and you talk about the dogs that you couldn't help. When you say that, is there a case or a dog that you remember in particular? Or do you think, do you remember that 25 years ago as like an aggregate and you sort of create a, an avatar of the person and the dog that you couldn't help, which was actually a blend of many of them? Or was there a certain case where one day you were like, fuck, and it has stuck with you? That's a really good question. I appreciate you asking that because it's something that I think about a lot. And it's funny enough. I think looking back on that now, I got a mild form of PTSD from that, just a mild form of it because I still remember things about it. There was a time I was sitting at my computer the other day and for some reason I was thinking about one of those dogs in that scenario and it popped into my head and I started getting, I could feel like a veil of sadness falling over me and it was a little Kelpie and he came down to the club and I could see that he was a handful when he got there. He was barking a lot and he was pulling a lot on the lead and you know, like he was trying to jump on top of the other dogs. And I remember one of the ladies in the club went down there and she said, oh, and she was a lovely person. She went down there and she was saying to the people, oh, he's a real handful, isn't he? And I could just see the look on their face and they're saying, oh, you know, literally what you're going through with your son. They just said, oh, he's keeping me up all night. He's just got so much energy. He just barks all the time. And and they were giving him exercises to do. And, and back then, you know, they were sort of employing, what you would consider the brain games for dogs, trying to make puzzles and mm-hmm. get him, you know, like give him an area that he could exercise at home where he could do a lot of digging and foraging and all sorts of things. And they just said, you know, like he's a working dog. I agreed with all this, you know, he's a working dog, he needs work because he was a, a farm bred Kelpie and he was busy. I remember this husband and wife coming down. I just saw the look on their face and how broken and shattered they were that not only were they failing at everything they were getting told to do with a dog because it was all positive reinforcement based. They were starting to get ridiculed by people and you could start to see, again, you could see, you know, the resent and the anger and the blame coming out. If I had the chance to sit down in this room with these people, they'd probably say, well, that's not really fair, Glenn. You're not really representing us in a positive light. I'm not trying to demonize these people. Because there's times where I get frustrated and annoyed with people when I know that they're not doing the work. But I know these two people were doing the work. Mm -hmm. Because I was new at the club and because I was a balanced trainer, 
I was kind of like Anakin Skywalker to them at that point in time. So (laughs) I was always being reminded that I was a Padawan and pushed to a side, you know, like, no, Glenn, you're not ready for this. You stay over there. But these people would gravitate towards me and they'd want to talk to me because they could see me following things. And they'd say, oh, what do you think? And they said, oh, he's a trainee, trainer here and stuff like that. So you need to go and speak to this person because they're sort of like the most experienced person at this club. And I could hear these people giving advice. And like I said, I supported and agreed with some of it, but then I could hear it and I'm starting to think, this is bullshit. Like these people aren't going to benefit from this. They've tried it. You're repeating the same thing over but you're giving it the guise of something else. You're really trying to envelope it into something else to make it sound mysterious and new, but it's not. It's the same advice. And all you're doing is just wrapping it up in this in another shitty package and I'm, they're just going to go away and they're just going to think I'm failures. Mm. They stopped coming down to the club. There was a shopping centre next to me called Knox City Shopping Centre and I was down there one day and I saw them. They saw me and they went to walk away from me and I thought, oh, this isn't good. I walked over and I said, oh, hi, guys, how are you? The girl's sitting there and she started having tears dripping out of her eyes. And I'm getting a bit weird thinking about this and talking about it, but she's sitting there and she's got tears coming out of her eyes and then she's saying, I feel like a piece of shit, but we actually had the dog put down. And I just realised this is fucked. This is a situation I could have helped that dog. And I so wish that I pulled them aside in the car park because all of my DNA was fighting me you know, like I was fighting against my natural tenacity to go over to them in the car park and say, guys, you need to come away with me and teach me. But I was so anchored into thinking I can't walk away from this. I'm invested in this. I've got to see it through. That was one of the the critical moments right there and then where I realized I literally let those people kill their dog. I could have stopped it. Mm. And that dog did not deserve to die. It did not deserve to be put down. And I know those people feel like pieces of shit, but they were literally getting told, you're not doing the work, you're not putting it in. When I sort of collected myself and we talked a bit more about it, I wanted to know what were you doing? They said, we were literally almost taking holidays from our job so we could stay home and train the dog and try and do all the techniques that we were shown. So right then it revealed to me like these people had literally invested everything in the marrow of their bones to try and resolve this dog's issue only to come back at one night of training a week or something, whatever it was, and be told you're not doing enough, you're not giving enough. That resonated within my soul. I thought something's wrong here. I've turned my back on something where I know I could have fixed this and I know I could have controlled it. Like I'm being looked at like I'm a pest. I'm constantly told to shut up. I'm constantly told to go away. Coming from This sounds arrogant and quite a little bit disrespectful in some ways, but in ADT, I was kind of, especially in the later days, I was kind of really looked at like in a magnificent way by people down there. Mm. And there's probably people that didn't like me, but I was treated godlike by people down there. Yeah, you were a bit of a king dingling. I was. And it was something that being a young guy, I've talked about this, I know, but being a young guy, I wasn't ready to be elevated that highly. I mean, that was magnificent for my already outrageous ego <laughs> to be to be thrown up on this pedestal and having people fighting for your attention and vying on your words and so forth, where I went to this other place and I was trash, mm. you know, like I was embarrassment to these people. And it wasn't always like, I know people must be thinking, oh my God, these people are terrible. They were terrible because I would not totally give in to their way. Mm. I was just not entirely committed. 
And I've had this conversation with people before where they've said to me, that's why you failed, Glenn, because you wouldn't give yourself over. And I said, no, that's not why I failed. I failed because what I saw wasn't right. And to be honest, I don't think plus R training was in a good enough evolution back then Mm. to say that it was sufficient. Like I've seen it getting much, much better now. Mm. As the world has been more informed and people have really invested a lot more time and there has been a lot more consolidation within the industry, I've seen it get better. I've seen the evolution taking on momentum. But back then I don't think it was. There were still people that were using – gentle leaders and halties on their dogs and considering that that was a gentle way of training dogs mm. because it was away from the the then um, disenfranchised check chain. Well, the check chain was the devil back then, you know, like that was forged in the fires of hell, fires of hell, you know, Satan grew that out of one of Satan's the Satan's anal beads. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was an interesting time. It kind of conjures up some funny memories for me when I think back to it a couple of people that I was more friendly at the club, they kind of said to me, oh, you're only getting picked on is because you're very intelligent and some people here feel threatened by you and so forth. But even them, when I could tell that they were being directed away from me, they didn't want to lose their position. Mm. And they realized that some heavy negative punishment is being bestowed on us now because we're sort of standing up for you. And I could see that they were being pulled away from me. Yeah. So all of that was the conclusion for me that this isn't right for me because I just, I could never really commit to it, as I said before, because it just didn't feel right. Mm. There were just so many things that weren't adding up. Questions wouldn't get answered. That dog was one of many of the problem dogs. Like problem dogs just disappeared from the club. Where did they go? And there was never any questions about it. It's like you don't, you, you just don't speak about these dogs. They vanish. So they were out of sight and out of mind. They were gone and you didn't ask about them. You didn't talk about them. And I kind of thought, well, isn't that worth talking about? Isn't that worth raising questions about? Like why aren't we talking about these sort of things? Everybody was programmed there not to talk about it. Mm. You know, it was like this cultish sort of mentality that if the leaders of the group say it's so, then it's so. You don't question anything. That was also strange for me because – With ADT, even though, you know, I think most people accepted that it was Boyd's club and Boyd runs the show, he still didn't prevent people from asking questions. We might have argued vehemently about things, but if he felt that you put up a good enough argument, he would say, okay, let's try it. That's a good point. That for me was fantastic. That was some of the things which I really enjoyed was that you were part of a discussion, not part of a dictatorship. Whereas when we did talk about something, I remember one night we sat there till three o'clock in the morning and I had to be up at seven o'clock in the morning, be cleaning kennels, but it's because we were debating training principles. We just thought that kind of makes sense, but we need to see it pragmatically. So we pulled the dogs, we all got the dogs out of the car and worked them one by one and thought, holy shit, it works. The dogs are responding to it. And that's how we knew that there was purpose in what we were doing because there was evidence. You could see the dogs transforming behaviors based on a different suggestion or method that people were saying. So we kind of thought, well, you can't argue with that if you can see that it's transformative, if you can see behavior starting to manifest over those ideas. And if you're part of that discussion and part of that group, that's a magnificent feeling because Mm. you get to contribute properly. That's what I really liked about it. Other people will say, oh, yeah, but that's just a good group that knits well together. But why are there 
groups out there that prevent you asking questions and get have a tantrum with you. And you're limited and shut down when you start getting somewhere in the spirit of the conversation. Mm. I think there's a difference between asking questions and being questioned. So, you know, like asking questions about the method is one thing, but asking questions about why, like there's another layer to that. Mm. And I think that's where some people kind of balk, right? Because if you ask me the how, there it is. But the when we want to sort of you know, peel back a layer and get under the questioning as to the why and we get behind like if it is that way but why and then pointing out any kind of hole in that is where people's the barriers usually sort of come up. Are you talking about like curiosity versus interrogation? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's a much better way of explaining it. Mm. Well done, sir. <laughs> I, I wasn't doing a good job there. but I, I, think, I knew where you're going. I mean, yeah. we both said the same thing a different way. Yeah. And mm. I think that that certainly in those group environments is you see people who are like, you know, I'm happy to teach you so long as you're asking me how to do what I do, mm. but not questioning why I do what I do. In a lot of communities, it doesn't matter whether it's dogs and we're talking training styles or whatever. I think that being a part of a community is so necessary for most people. And anything that would put you on the outs of that community, you don't want to do. So I think a lot of communities are built on lies. Mm. And it's funny we're having this conversation because actually just a few hours ago, but like on my way out here, I won't say who it was with because you'll understand why in a moment. But we were talking about how this person has come from kind of a fluffy trainer kind of background, Mm. did some work with me because the dog was quite reactive, a good dog, but just kind of a, a lot of dog. And, you know, to be stock proofed, we used an e-collar and they're in a place where it's legal and it's all fine. You know, like they did it. There's no, there's no reason they shouldn't have. Yep. And the dog got some big corrections, but now runs free every day, yep. you know, and runs amidst the kangaroos and knows that they're off the table and has like a life of freedom that it couldn't have had any other way. Yep. Like a horse in a horse paddock. Yeah. Don't touch the fence. Yep, exactly. Mm. Yep. And so the dog sort of has become this fantastic – it's the dog that the person always wanted, right? It's fantastic. They love the dog. And people from the community with which they still train remark how wonderfully trained (laughs) the dog is – and, and take credit for it. No, not take credit for it, but but even remark about like how fantastic their relationship is and they have to keep the secret that, well, actually that training was achieved with an e-collar. And so the people could never know, right, the heads of that community, the coaches in that space can't find out that that's how that was actually achieved. And they probably then see, they say, oh, well, look at so-and-so and when someone comes and they say, look, I've got the same kind of dog and I'm having the same kind of issues. They say, well, our method will work. Look at so-and-so because their dog was once like yours and is mm. now not and perfect. And they train with us. That person can never admit to them. Well, actually I spoke to Pat and Pat talked me through how to fix this problem with the e-collar because they'll be kicked out of the community. And so the people at the top of that community probably really truly feel that their method worked on that dog when it didn't, it didn't at all. Mm. But the evidence to them suggests that it did. 
And that person can never say, well, it, this is how it went down because in doing so, she would then be removed from the community. She wants to remain a part of the community. Yep. So it's this real trap. And I think that that happens a lot and not just in that space. I think in lots of things and not just in our space of dog training. I think that, that that's around sort of in, in lots of things where you say like, oh, I'm in the gang. It's not quite working out for me. And I want to just have a, like, I want this problem fixed. So I'll, I'll get one of the other gang members from a different rival gang to help me out. Mm. But I, I can't admit that. And so the people at the top of the gang are like, well, we, you're one of us that worked and you're in the clique. And then when someone else turns up with the same problem, the advice that they give is in their mind going to work because it, it, it worked fictionally on another dog, mm. but that's not really how it went down. And it's that human striving for connection. Like we all want to be a part of a community and we want coaches and we want people to like us and we don't want to be the outcast. But then that means that we kind of live a bit of a life of bullshit because we're sort of stuck in that, well, this is how we do it. And, and you know, like I used the method, I'm in the gang, please don't kick me out because I want more information from you. I find your information value valuable, mm. but it's not the panacea, right? There's other things that are applicable. And I think that happens to us probably in the balanced community as well, like, but just in different like parts, you see it in certain training clubs where it's like, it's my way or the highway and people like I've, you know, uh, one of the things I'm good at in dog training is I'm a pretty good problem solver. Like looking at dogs and sort of saying, oh, I see where you, I see, you know, like people having a peculiar issue and they're like, you know, how do I get to this point? And I'm like, I can help you through this. Mm. And sometimes, I mean, I do it all the time. It, it's what I do every week that I'm on Skype calls is that, you know, it's someone who's training director, their method has caused them an issue and now they're like, well, that person can't help me because they've caused the issue and they're telling me to do it more. So they secretly want me to help them come up with another plan to do secretly at home. And then they never tell that training director because maybe the training director would be like, oh, cool. Like I didn't know there was another way. The reason I was telling you this way is because that's the only way I know. Mm. But they'll never have that in their data set because – if there's a mindset in the club or the group or whatever that we're not allowed to bring in other information or we can never question the method, then they'll never know that their method wasn't the right one and the accurate one and, you know, whatever, because they're not open to, you know, finding out that the reason the dog is no longer doing it is because they didn't do their method, not from having done their method. Well, before when I said that they took the credit, a better way to say that was that they saw the results and felt reinforced by what they saw. Yeah, mm. totally. That's probably a better way to, to describe it. And I think what I've seen a few times is in sometimes in the, like a particular training method club, the reason that club forms and those people are sort of together initially is because it does work. And on their dogs in the circumstances they have, it works. Yep. I've seen this happen a few times and, you know, I'll speak carefully because I don't know this to be true, but I see someone quite regularly now, like just around my area mm. who was a, a part of a club or a training group that are, you know, quite force free, whatever. And they're good. They, they provide a lot of value. They do a lot of good work. They help a lot of people, but, the dog that I – she's got a different dog. I haven't seen those people in a long time, but it's a, it's a different dog. Mm. It needs something else. Yep. And I sometimes see people like that and they know this dog needs something else, 
but I have been for so long saying that no dog needs something else that now I'm kind of painted into a corner and I, I, I can't, I can't do those things. And I certainly can't go looking for other answers. And if you do, in order to do that, you would have to confront the reality that the hundreds of people or dozens of people, whatever, that have been in the situation that you're now in when you weren't in it and had never been in it, the advice that you gave them was so far wrong and that you didn't give those people good advice. Mm. And I think having to admit that to yourself would be, that's the torment that you face now because you are doing that. You do have the fortitude and you didn't get too far into it to get stuck in that space. But when people do, I think that's how they get trapped because in order to admit and say, well, on my dog, I could be a particular style of trainer, but now I have a different dog and I'm realizing it's not working. If I were to admit that it's not working and look for a new method, I would have to confront the reality that I tried to push this method onto so many people that it was not the right method for. So I have to continue to believe it's the right method. And I think maybe that happens, that conversation happens at a subconscious level. Like you, they probably wouldn't be able to rationalize that. They're not thinking that way, but I think that's maybe the reason why people just stick with it mm. and, and they're just like, no, this has to be, it. it will work eventually. It has to be it. And I think in, in some cases like that as well, you know, like, like those, those dogs that are outside the scope of being trained in that way, like sometimes that short term discomfort for a life of, of happiness and a strong aversion to a particular thing. Mm. I couldn't imagine not doing that. I couldn't imagine diminishing the life of a dog in general mm. in order to avoid the idea of not just giving it a hefty correction and giving it an aversion to something and then going like, that's off the table for you, my friend. But now the world is open to you mm. because without doing that, I have to lock you away from the world. And, and you know, the, then the reactivity sort of spirals and blah, 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 like because the dog's not getting fulfilled and it doesn't go anywhere people leads to resent of their dog, you know, all those things that happens when you can't take the dog somewhere. The story that you originally told of that dog with the experience with the e collar, stopping chasing ruse and so forth, although I entirely agree and it was probably very similar if not identical to advice that I'd give myself, I knew that back then and I denied these dogs of access to that mm. because I thought I have to stay this path. And that was fucking with my head like you wouldn't believe. The internal conflict and the torment that I was going through, the in the monologue, that narrative that's inside your, everyone's head all the time, that other voice that you can hear, that was shouting at me, you're fucking this dog over. You're like, you're doing the wrong thing. But it was like I, I thought to myself, I can't fail this. I'm invested in this now. I have to stay the path. And, I mean, I really feel like a thinking back on this. These dogs were just disappearing, never to be seen again. Mm. And I remember another one, another one that really got under my skin was some of the people that came down the club. They had this little staffy cross and it was actually a nice little dog and it would have really benefited from a correction here or there. It really would have. Um, everybody made their life hell because they just kept saying, oh, you know, this dog is just so energetic and it's just such a trouble to be down the club. And that was what they were constantly being told. This dog is is just trouble. That became the nickname of the dog. And I remember somebody chastised them one day in the car park and said, yeah, we're not saying that because it's a good thing. That dog disappeared. Yeah. And so did they. But six weeks later, they came back with a new puppy. Mm. 
I did question them. I just said, oh, where's trouble? They said, oh, that's not his name, you know. And I said, that's all I hear him getting called. And they said, oh, yeah, um, we had to put him down. And I said, what happened? And they just said, oh, we don't want to talk about it. We'd rather just concentrate on this new pup. The husband said to me, I suppose you're going to judge us too. And I said, I just don't know what to say. That's why I'm saying nothing because I, I just don't know what to say. And he said, well, that's probably a good thing. Just let's leave it at that. And then they walked off. They put in a formal complaint about me for talking to them in the car park. Yeah. They're not good memories. Like they're not things that I look back on with fondness. That's the troubling thing. That's the thing that I really have that fucking spins around in my head is that dog would have been in a vet clinic thinking, oh, I'm just at the vets and it would have just ended mm. just like that. That's hard to wear, that you could have intervened and you could have stopped it. Mm. He would what? have had a shitty afternoon and then the rest of his life would have been awesome. He could have had, don't do that. Here's a here's a here's an afternoon you're not going to enjoy. We're going to create a couple of corrections. We're going to create an aversion to the problem behaviors that you have and then you get to carry on the rest of your life. Well, as I said, you know, in one of the episodes we had the other day, Jordan Rowland from Tassie was here and he had a little spicy border collie. I just showed him. I said, one correction, I can really start changing this dog's life, but not in a nasty way, like not in a, in a bad way. Dog got one firm correction from me and it literally turned around and went, wow, that's not, never happened before. And it, as soon as it modified its behavior, like we all do, you would do, and many other trainers, I marked the dog and reinforced it after it had time to think and contemplate, not immediately after. I shouldn't say immediately after. After the dog contemplated and then transformed into new behavior, I marked the dog and the dog came over. And Jordan goes, you know, like probably two or three of those and the dog was walking nicely on the lead. And I've told this story anyway, but that's what I could have done with that Staffy. Mm. I knew I could have done that with that Staffy. And that's the thing, you know, like here I am 20-something years later and I can still see that fucking dog and those people in my head. That's how much it's tormented me all these years. Mm. And that's that's one of the things that I'll never forgive these people for is that they let that dog die. Mm. And they were just happy to – not happy. Let me – I should choose my words carefully – it's not that they were happy to. It was just easier if that dog went away. Willing to. Willing to, yes. They were willing to allow it to happen so that dog didn't make a mockery of their system when people would say, why is this dog not, you know, like where is the evidence to say that this dog is representative of your club and its values? Mm. But those dogs just disappeared. They just kept disappearing. It was like a it was like one of those movies where somebody doesn't conform and they just disappear. But this movies like science fiction movies yeah, yeah. like that where you know like people just don't conform to the new society and they're just gone. They vanish them. Let's talk about though. You'd learned a lot from these people. I did. I did. A strong skill set. When you then decided, okay, I'm I'm done here, and you went and trained some dogs, your own dogs, whatever, and you were like, hey, I now have two categories of skill sets what if i brought those together what was that like as well, as you started to do that well that was happening at home right you know okay. like that so was, you were still secretly doing that with your own encounters with dogs well i had two dirty secrets one was i wasn't telling anybody about my time at this club and really it's only the podcast that i've revealed that that's what i used to do because i never told people that i was going down there because secretly I was ashamed of myself for doing it, mm. for going against my grain. And I, it took me a long time to work this out. Like why wasn't I telling people? Why wasn't I admitting to people that I was training at a different club doing, you know, mainly positive style training? It's because I was I was ashamed of myself for giving up on something that I 
And especially when I realised what was happening that was causing me to feel that way. But I wasn't telling people about it. Mm. The other dirty secret, I was, wasn't telling them that I was training my own dogs using balanced methods. <laughs> so, you know, like I'd take my roddies down and, you know, they were holding like 20-minute drop stays and I'd take Gammon and, and uh, I think Harley was st- – yeah, it was Harley – Harley and Gammon, and I'd take them down and they'd be doing 20-minute downstairs and I'd say, oh, we don't feel comfortable with the dogs off lead, you know, like sitting there all that time. And I said, they've been doing that for six weeks and they've never broken a drop stay. Like I would be assisting a class with Harley and Gammon in the middle of the class doing a drop stay and all these little white fluffies were jumping around my dogs and they would go, oh, why won't they get up? And I said, they're trained, you know, and they said, how did you train your dogs? And I'd be like side glancing at one of the other instructors because I could see them turning beetroot colours just to say, don't you say it. Don't you say that you've used compulsion with these dogs before. I just didn't say anything. Rather than tell an immediate lie, I would just say, well, you need to keep turning up and doing the work and that's that's <laughs> what I did. I kept turning up and doing the work. So technically I wasn't lying because that's what I did. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that sort of you know, speaks to what I was talking about in the part just before about how it's a false representation of the method mm. because it, it's not really the method. And when you turn up with dogs that are reliable as shit because you've used compulsion on them and now you learn some like flashy positive reinforcement stuff and you bring up the attitude a bit more and whatever. So th- that was nice and I definitely improved Harley's healing from that because – to be honest, Harley had a pretty hard time with that old style healing and that did actually bring up his healing method, especially with Dutch. I learned a lot from that style of training with Dutch. Like he actually really started prancing like a pony when I started teaching him that. Yeah. And I, I started to think to myself, holy shit, this is something I've never really mm-hmm. seen in, in my dogs before, you know, like uh, a lot more interest in healing, a lot more attitude in healing. And Dutch was a bit of a prancer anyway. It was just a little bit in his DNA, but it really brought him on because I was using food with him and styling a different format of training that wasn't traditional to what I'd learned, but I'd learned it from that group that I was training with. Mm. So as a caveat to this discussion, people are hearing some pretty awful things and they're thinking, well, you must be really down on positive trainers to say all this sort of stuff. Absolutely not. I was down on myself for allowing myself to go so long without saying, look, thanks guys, but... I've learned a lot. I really appreciate the great stuff that I've learned, but, you know, I'm just not going to kill dogs just for, for doing this type of training. That's the sad side of it. The other side of it was the dogs that were flourishing and they were doing a great job. Mm. Like they were coming up really well. They were entering trials. Some of the dogs, they were really doing well in trials, you know, like they were doing like a kind of, it was before dancing with dogs really became dancing with dogs. They were doing all that sort of stuff down there. And it was lovely to watch. My complex skills techniques grew because of these people. So even though I'm talking about some of the negative stuff, there was still positive things that I gained from it. Mm. Like I learned to be a better trainer. There were definitely takeaways from doing it. And I'm I'm glad for so much of it. I'm just not glad for knowing that I was complicit in too many dogs that could have been saved being put down for very minimal reasons. Mm. It's heavy, man. It it is, and it weighs heavy on me. I will probably die with that as one of my regrets. That's a nail of regret that will be in my coffin. Mm. And I I can't do anything to relieve myself of it. I just feel sad that I allowed it to happen. But it's a little bit therapeutic being able to discuss it and being able to say it out loud. And some people might be thinking, dude, you've talked in shows about you don't make an omelette without breaking some eggs. 
I just think it was too many fucking eggs. Mm. Too many eggs. Well, I think, you know, that's the issue of any strict method in dog training. Like I feel maybe 80% of dogs, whatever your method is, it'll work, right? And if it's purely positive or compulsion or whatever, like you find a level and, and it kind of works. The issue I, I is- I like that, man. I, I think flexibility is key. Yeah, but that's the issue. Sort of like there's 10% at either end of the spectrum that uh, don't fit the method. And that's always been my big concern. It's one of the key things that from the talent code and Bart sort of, you know, really drills into people is that that role of the master coach is to apply the right method to the right dog. Mm. And it's the cookie cutter or, you know, this will always work. That sort of problem, that sort of mentality becomes a problem because it will work on a ton of dogs. If it's a well-established method, it will work on shitloads, mm. but not all. And you know, the lack of flexibility lets 10% at the top and 10% at the bottom down. And I think it's being able to provide, being able to look at the dog and then say like, hey, this is what's right for you. And not being like, this is the method. Week one, day one is this. Week two, day six is this. It's just like, no, the dog will tell me. You know, that we have so many mechanisms in this in that can tell where the dogs are learning things. And you know when to go to the next step because the dog demonstrates competence in the last one. It's not because it's the it's the 16th day of training that you do you do a particular thing. You do a particular thing when the dog demonstrates competence at the step before and you move on to the next one. Mm. And, and you, like, you know, you read the dog and you say, hey, like, how's your learning going here? Are you enjoying this? Can we bring up your attitude and arousal here? Oh, have I lost you a little bit? What do I need to do to bring you back in? Or, you know, you're demonstrating a, an unhealthy or a, a problematic obsession with something or a focus issue on something else. Like, okay, let's bring you back in. And it's really reading the dog and using the technique that's available to you. Mm. Like there's certain dogs that I just don't enjoy to train and I refer them out. And I think that that's the key. No matter what method you want to use and no matter what modality you want to be in and whatever click and cult that you're a part of, cool, enjoy that community. I just think that like fucking over other people or judging them harshly if they choose to train in a different way and not offering them guidance if they want to go a different path. Like even if you don't want to be the one that walks them down that path, I think it's then saying, well, I, you know, I know some people, we call these guys. I think that's the that's what I think is important in dog training. Absolutely. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Like that's why, you know, I, I try and, you know, maintain as strong a network as possible in dog training and, and all around the world because like I deal with people all around the world, but I want to be able to sort of refer people on and say, no, this is someone that can help you. I either can't or don't want to. Right. And, but here's a person and that's what they do. Mm. I love doing that. That's what makes me super happy being able to refer people on. I think more of that in the industry. And, and I think that, you know, like again, to speak, you know, cause I don't want it to be an episode of shitting on non tool using people because I think loads of them do do that. I think that plenty of people who they do, I know, I, I know groups of people who I have actually had referrals myself from people yeah, in same. the community where they've just said, this dog's not going to work in our system. Yeah, he's not going to flourish under yeah. us, but under you he may. And they've been entirely honest with that and they've said, you know, like even though we're not a tool-using club, we see the need that this dog would probably need it. And I really admire those type of people. Yeah. They're not saying that that they want to use it. What they're saying is that they recognise that there are certain dogs. The effectiveness. The effectiveness of it. And rather than kill that dog for not fitting in with the company standard, so to speak, they can go elsewhere and they can try another technique. Mm. As you've said before, that I'm really disappointed at that whole death before discomfort mandate. It's madness. I think death before traumatic abuse 
systematic traumatic abuse. That's probably something we could talk about exploring. But death before a bit of discomfort? Fuck me. Seriously. Mm. All right. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. Yep. If you like what you hear, just um, give us a little likey-like. Just um, A little likey-like? Yeah. Mm. Just jump in, leave a little comment, say yep. like it. Yep. Maybe a review somewhere, share it with a friend, do a little screenshot of it, put it on your gram, make a little story. You know, do one of those po- – one of the ones I like was with people that like – they're playing the podcast in the car yes. and they film themselves like nodding in agreement with Because <laughs> that's how I imagine everyone listens to the podcast, just nodding in, in constant agreement with everything that we say. Nobody ever thinks that we're full of shit dickheads. No one thinks that. <laughs> Everybody nods in constant agreement. I saw that one person, they didn't actually go and scream in, in a crowd, listen to the canine paradigm, but they had their dogs sitting up on a little bench while they film themselves on on the gram. I love it when I get a little tag and I look at some of the stories and I think, oh, thanks, man. That's nice. Yeah, it's fun. I like it. Yeah. I'm still waiting for the one where someone screened, like they put their story. It's like, ugh, would you listen to these dickheads? (laughs) (laughs) If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is jump into Patreon. Patreon, it's a few bucks a month. There's giant backlog of content, new stuff coming Mm. in all the time. Put some stuff in there the other day. Live streams. I've got to set one of those up soon. Just jump in there. It's mm. rad. I want to do a live stream on um, contaminating odours in scent work. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Do it. I got asked by a few people the other day and I thought, oh, I really should do that on Patreon as a as part of our live stream. And do if it. anyone's interested, I'm happy to do it and talk to you. So let me know. Do it. Yeah. It's easy. Well, I'll get you to coach me because you do the monopolizing on that and thank you. I'm all about – I know all about going you, live, mate. I'm you do. Like, don't, don't you are me. the go live king. Don't tell me about boats, mm. mate. I know boats. <laughs> <laughs> the other way to support the show is Teespring or Spring. Just buy some stuff. Get a goddamn water bottle. They don't have water bottles. What? They do like water tumblers and, and wine tumblers and so forth, but – Fuck those. Yeah, it just doesn't look goddamn good. Water bottle. All right, if you can make us water bottles and let us know. Well, I think Vista or Vista Print or someone does them, so I'll have, right. a, I'll have a look into a, a third-party company doing them. You know what we need is Yeti ones. We need those, like, fancier shit ones. That's what we need. Maybe if Yeti just sort of came on board and thought, fuck. Mate, I've been trying to get sponsored by Yeti. I know you have. I can remember. Yeah. And they just. They won't do it. They're not interested in me. Yeah. They're like, beat it. They're just like, oh, you're so fucking small time compared to us giants. piece of shit. Mm. At this point, they'd have to cash sponsor me because I bought every product they've fucking got. I saw you walk in with a hoodie from a Yeti hoodie or something the other day. It's the best. Did you buy that? $80. 80 bucks. It's the best. It's a sweatshirt. It has no hood. They have a hoodie, mm-hmm. but I got the non-hoodie version. Mm. What makes it so good? It's, it's, it's got Yeti, Yeti on it. it. It's, got, <laughs> <laughs> it's, got a, it's got a tiny little tag on the sleeve that says Yeti. My favorite T-shirt at this point in time mm. is one that Zoe Needy sent over to me that just oh, yeah. says dog person on it. Yeah. I get so much comments. So I always say, well, my good friend Zoe sent it to me from Sit Pretty Apparel. Mm-hmm. So thank you. You sent, She sent one to you and one yeah. to Jane and one yeah. to Narelle. Mine said enjoy your dog on it, but I got bitten while I was wearing it. <sighs> so it, did, it was destroyed. Yeah. I think I'm just stretching mine in my COVID fat days. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So get some stuff. If you want to get in contact with us, jump into the discussion group. Get in there. Mm. Get into that group. Get in there. Stop not being in the group. Yep. Make sure you're wearing pants when you're in that group, please. No, you don't have to wear pants. You do whatever you want. No, on Fridays you can't wear pants. It's pants on Fridays. Okay, yep. fair enough. So get in the group and if you want to shoot us an email, we are info at thecanineparadigm.com. Goodbye. 